0: Take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene.
1: Do you ever wonder if maybe you're on the wrong side of history? People use that phrase, don't they? You're on the wrong side of history. And basically what they mean is that your ideas and your values and all the things you stand for is basically yesterday's news. And history is going to prove you wrong. In years to come, people will wonder how people like you could ever have existed. The Flat Earth Society. You'd probably say they turned out to be on the wrong side of history. Maybe socialism or communism turned out to be on the wrong side of history. Do you ever wonder if maybe Christians are on the wrong side of history? Kind of feels like it, doesn't it? Our culture has just rejected everything we believe about sex, about marriage, about family, about life and death and money. Pretty much everything about Christianity has been rejected by our culture. Did you see the census data that came out last week? Christianity's dying in Australia. The the blue line you can see on the screen at the top, that is the percentage of Australians who call themselves Christians. And in 1971, it was 86%. In 2021, it was 43%. In other words, it's halved in my lifetime. In fact, more than a million people have stopped calling themselves Christians since the last census in 2016. That's scary, right? How long before that blue line just dips to zero? In fact, you get the feeling that now might be the right time to jump religion, to jump ship and go to another religion? Because some of the other religions are growing. Islam in Australia grew by 30% since 2016. Maybe you could go to Hinduism or Buddhism. Although if you really want to go with the smart money is, you'd have to go with no religion at all. Because they grew by nearly three million people in Australia since 2016. So is now maybe the time just to ditch religion altogether, especially because we live in such uncertain times, right? what with COVID and rising house prices and rising interest rates, there's war in Europe now, flood these last couple of weeks. Wouldn't it make sense to just zero in and just focus on your own life? Look after yourself, look after your kids, build your finances, secure your future. That would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? I mean, certainly now is not the time to become a Christian. I mean, why would you ever jump on board a dying religion? Becoming a Christian now, it's like investing in VHS technology. It's yesterday's news. Christians are on the wrong side of history. Or are we? See, I wonder if maybe Matthew 2 might have something to say about that. In fact, just to push ahead, I'm going to say from Matthew 2, I want to suggest that Jesus is the right side of history. And today is the perfect day for you to become a Christian. You see, it's all got to do with God's plans, God's determined plans for Jesus. If you are here for our first couple of weeks, you'll see Jesus was born in a pretty incredible way, wasn't he? There were virgins and angels and all that sort of stuff. And if you've downloaded today's outline, you'll see that Matthew 2 shows us two big things that God ensures about Jesus. And the first thing that God ensures is that Jesus reigns, even as a baby. So just take a look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. So this is sometime after Jesus was born. Jesus is maybe somewhere between six months and two years old at this point. And these strange people turn up in Jerusalem looking to worship or honor the king. Matthew, Matthew calls them magi. And if you grew up doing Christmas You've probably heard them called the three wise men, or you sometimes they're even called kings. So you might remember the old carol, We Three Kings of Orientar, which always confused me as a child because I wondered where Orientar was and why it had three kings. But actually, you know, in history, it turns out they weren't kings, and they also weren't from the Orient. They were astrologers, and they probably came from Babylon. See, the Babylonians were really into astrology. It was part of their religion and their culture. Daniel mentions them. And these astrologers spent their time examining the stars and charts and so on and trying to predict the future. And, you know, by the first century, there were actually loads of Jews living in Babylon because their families had been exiled there and hadn't actually come back home. There was a whole Jewish community there in Babylon And so it makes sense that some of these Babylonian astrologers would have been interested in the Jews and Jewish religion. And in verse 2, these astrologers have come to Jerusalem looking for a baby who they say has been born king of the Jews. And in fact, they've seen a star rise that's led them there. And you know, it's funny, at this point, It seems that the astrology we're talking about here seems to be genuine. Matthew doesn't say it explicitly, but it seems like God has led these astrologers there by a star. Because in verse 9, the star leads them right to where Jesus is in Bethlehem. Which means if you're a Bible Christian, this kind of gives us a problem, right? Because God is not into astrology at all. In Deuteronomy four, God says, and when you look up to the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. See, God tells Israel not to worship these stars, not to place them at the level of control, because you see, God is the one who put the moon and the stars in their place. The stars do not control our destiny. God does. If anything, we rule the stars because we rule over God's creation. And so what do we make of God sending astrologers to Jesus by the stars? Does God like astrology now? Can Christians use astrology? Should I be reading my stars online or in the paper? I mean, lots of Christians do. Well, look, one thing to say is that so far as I can tell, Most astrology that we have around us these days is actually just nonsense. The stuff you read in the papers, the stuff you see online, it really is just a load of charlatans trying to lead us astray. But at its worst, it's actually the work of Satan. Because you see, demons are behind false religion. And so if you're a Christian, do not be reading the stars. Read your Bible. And yet, if that's the case, why does God use it here? Well, Look, Matthew doesn't explicitly tell us, does he? But one of the big themes of Matthew is that the ignorant nations worship Jesus the King, whereas Israel, the people who should worship him, don't. That's one of the things that Jesus condemns the Jews for, that the ignorant nations are worshiping God's true King, while his own people, the Jews, don't. So in Matthew 8, a a Roman centurion, an outright pagan, trusts Jesus' word. And Jesus says, truly, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, all the way through Matthew, it's the ignorant pagans who come and worship the true king while the Jews refuse. And here in chapter two is the beginning of that theme. It's the first time. That is, this is not God legitimizing astrology. This is God condemning Israel. God's showing that even the superstitious nations are more open to his king than his own people are. And in fact, in this passage, God leads the nations to honour Jesus. So in verse 2, they come looking to worship Jesus. And it's probably not worship as in worship like a God. It's to pay the respect that is due to a king. And then look down in verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You see, Matthew starts his story with Magi looking to come and honour Jesus. And he ends the story by showing it's actually happened. Here they are on their knees before Jesus as their king. Because you see, this is what God wants for Jesus. God has led these Magi hundreds of miles across open desert to honour and worship Jesus. He's used their own superstitious religion to lead them to the true King because this is what God wants for Jesus. This is God's purpose in history that Jesus will be honoured. But of course, the Magi didn't need the stars to lead them to Jesus. Now, Jesus' rule and reign, that was already promised by God in his scriptures in the Old Testament. So have another look in verse 2. The Magi ask, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Israel, all Jerusalem with him. And when he'd called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah or the King, the Christ, was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, the Magi didn't actually need stars to lead them to Jesus. Anyone could open the Old Testament and see this, this was what God had promised. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers uh, of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And actually, there are two Old Testament passages there. There's Micah chapter 5, which was written about 800 years before Jesus. And God promises a king is going to come from Bethlehem and he'll rule over God's people. He'll be a ruler from an ancient line and that line will be David's line. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 5, God says to David, who was born in Bethlehem, you will shepherd my people Israel and you'll become their ruler. You see, they didn't need a star to lead them to Jesus. God declared his intention 800 years before Jesus was born. A king like David was going to be born in David's town in Bethlehem and he would rule and he'd shepherd God's people. And in fact, God had been shaping history for his purposes for generations. So if you've got a Bible, just turn back to chapter one for a second. Remember, we looked at Jesus' family tree in Matthew chapter one. Well, Micah was written way up there in verse nine when Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah were on the throne. And look how many generations there are between those guys and Jesus. There's Manasseh and Amon and Josiah and Jeconiah and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and Abiud and Eliakim and Azor and all those other kings right the way down to Jesus. There's 800 years worth of history there, 800 years of God shaping history. You see, Christianity is not on the wrong side of history. Jesus is the culmination of history. In fact, it's even bigger than that. God chose Jesus even before he created the world. God chose that Jesus would be the sacrifice for our sins and the ruler over the crea- since before the creation of the whole world. You see, those magi, they weren't worshipping Jesus by chance that day. They were there by the will of God, according to the promise of God. And when you see that, When you think about God's control over all of history, do you think we really need to worry about being on the wrong side of history? Do you think we need to worry that that graph of Christianity in Australia will continue down to zero? That the God who chose Jesus before the creation of the world and promised a king who'd rule and then led the Magi to... Do you think that God is going to be powerless to stop Christianity? from dying out in Australia? Of course not, right? That's absurd. God knows what he's doing. God's not just on the right side of history. God writes history. And no threat will ever overthrow his plans. God is determined that Jesus will reign. And what we see in the second half of the chapter is God is determined to protect Jesus. God overcomes the great threat that is Herod the Great. Because to be honest, on the surface, King Herod is an enormous threat to the baby Jesus, isn't it? The toddler Jesus. Because you see, Jesus may have been born in Bethlehem, in King David's line. He may have been born as a king, but the fact is there is already a king for Israel sitting in Jerusalem. His name is Herod. And you mightn't actually know a lot about Herod. In fact, you might even be a little bit confused when it comes to Herod, because Herod seems to pop up all over the place throughout the New Testament. In fact, he seems to pop up even after he dies. And that's because there are actually a bunch of Herods, of different Herods in the New Testament. And they all come from one family. So there's Herod Antipas and Herod Agrippa, and then there's Herodias. And and we're meeting the head of that family here, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the big daddy of them all, quite literally. He ruled from about 40 BC to around 4 BC or a little later. And let me tell you, Herod the Great was a formidable man. He was a brilliant politician. He was incredibly canny and and shrewd. He was a great builder. He built the temple in Jesus' day. But quite frankly, he was also a paranoid psychopath. As he got older, he got more and more paranoid that his family and the people were around him were going to overthrow and kill him. And so he actually had his favorite wife, Mariamne, and also two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, uh, executed for conspiring against him, even though it turned out they were innocent. In fact, Herod planned to have hundreds, literally hundreds of leaders killed just so that people would mourn his death. So on the screen, you can see something from the historian Josephus, where he writes, Herod commanded that all the principal men of the entire Jewish nation, wheresoever they lived, should be called to him. And when they were come, he ordered them all to be shut up in the Hippodrome. I shall die in a little time, so great are my pains. But what principally troubles me is this, that I shall die without being lamented and without such mourning as men usually expected a king's death. He desired, therefore, that as soon as they see that he had given up the ghost, they shall place soldiers around the hippodrome while they do not know that he is dead. And they shall give orders to have those that are in custody shot with their darts, and that this slaughter of them all will cause that he should have the honor of memorable mourning at his funeral. In other words, Herod the Great was such a psycho, he ordered a massacre just so that people would mourn when he died. Now, look, thankfully, his family didn't carry out that order, but you kind of get a feeling from this about the the sort of man Herod the Great is, don't you? And so you can imagine how Herod is going to react to a rival king being born. In verse 3, Matthew says he's disturbed, which I think is a masterpiece of understatement. There is no way that Herod is going to allow a rival king to survive. And so in verse eight, Herod says to the Magi, go and search carefully this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And even as you read that, you know Herod's lying, don't you? He's not going to worship Jesus. He's going to kill Jesus. In fact, Herod shows his true colors down in verse 16, doesn't he? Take a look. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. That is the kind of man that King Herod the Great is. Just to eliminate one potential rival, he orders the massacre of a bunch of helpless babies. This event is actually known as the massacre of the innocents. And it's funny, you know, it's actually become kind of fashionable to say that this massacre didn't happen. Loads of non-Christian or liberal Christian scholars say that Matthew just made this story up to make the tale more exciting or to draw some kind of link between Jesus and Moses in the Old Testament. And so if you read the Wikipedia, Wikipedia article on King Herod the Great, it says, most Herod biographers do not believe that this event occurred. And yet, when you read the reason why, their reason is that no non-Christian document records this massacre. And actually, really what it is, it's part of a popular suspicion of anything the Bible says. It's part of that whole, the Bible is the wrong, on the wrong side of history thing. That's for lots of people, there's actually just this basic stance that you can't trust anything the Bible says. The default is that the Bible must have just made stuff up and that it's not proper history. And yet when you think about it, isn't the massacre of the innocents entirely in keeping with King Herod's character? Isn't it entirely feasible that a man who murdered his own favourite wife and two sons and then ordered the execution of hundreds of leaders... Isn't it feasible that he would kill a dozen or so boys? Because that's how many babies we're talking about here. Bethlehem was actually a pretty small place. We're probably talking about a dozen or so boys under the age of two. Which is probably why we don't write about it in other sources. It just wasn't that big a deal at the time. What is the death of a dozen or so babies in the context of Herod's brutality? But it makes perfect sense with what we do know about Herod, doesn't it? I wonder, if you're not a Christian, is your basic assumption that the Bible is true or not true? That it's history or a fairy tale? Because you see, time and time again, when the archaeology is done, the Bible has been proven to be an accurate record of history. What it says about Jesus, what it says about other historical figures, what it says about ancient cities like Jericho and Jerusalem and Nineveh. There are loads of examples of historians starting off by saying, oh that can't possibly be true, that definitely can't have happened, only to discover that the Bible actually turns out to be right. And that it was their assumption that the Bible is on the wrong side of history that turned out to be wrong. If you're not a Christian, can I say Read the Bible with fresh eyes. Maybe it is on the right side of history. But anyway, Herod is a massive threat to God's king. Here's Jesus. He's only a toddler. He can barely walk. And already, he has the most powerful man in the nation as an enemy. If anyone looks like he is on the wrong side of history at this point, it's the baby Jesus, right? And yet in Matthew chapter 2, we see God's determination that Jesus will reign and that Jesus will be protected. And so have a look how things play out in Matthew 2.11 following. On coming to the house, the Magi saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Isn't that an incredible story? The drama is just amazing. So the Magi come, they find Jesus and they honor Jesus. And then they get a dream telling them not to go back to Herod. And at the same time, Joseph also has a dream where an angel tells him to get up and escape to Egypt. And look, the likelihood is everything we're reading about here is taking place within the space of 36 hours, right? Because you see, Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. Bethlehem is literally just a hop and a skip down the road from Jerusalem. And so the likelihood is the Magi find Jesus the very next day after they've seen Herod. And that very night, God sends the Magi a dream to clear out and avoid Herod. And that very night, God sends Joseph a dream and he says, get up, get out of your bed, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. God literally gets Joseph out of bed and they're on the road that very night. And the next day or the day after, the boys in Bethlehem are massacred. This is all within the space of about 36 hours. It's an incredibly tense moment, isn't it? It's an incredibly close shave. And yet it's not really a close shave at all. Because God's in complete control during this whole time to protect his baby king. God controls history here, the dream, the angels. God's making sure that Herod is on the wrong side of history, not Jesus. And even after that night, God tells Joseph when to come back and where to go. So look in 2.19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Just see what's happening throughout this passage Matthew chapter 2. Four dreams. Four angels in the space of 23 verses. This has actually got to be one of the most supernatural chapters in the whole Bible because Matthew's showing us here the lengths that God goes to to make sure that Jesus, his king, is safe. Herod might be threatening. Herod might be the great, but he's on the wrong side of history here. God is determined that Jesus will be king. And he protects him. It's funny, you know, one of the things that this chapter leads us to ask, might lead us to ask is, well, is this how we should expect God to guide us now? Should I be expecting God to guide me the way that he guides Jesus in Matthew chapter two? Because again, lots of Christians think that that's how God will guide us. I spoke to a lady in New Zealand just a couple of weeks back and she was convinced that God would, had guided her through all sorts of dreams throughout her life. I And look, God can do that, can't He? I mean, God guided Joseph and Mary through dreams. I'm sure if God wanted to guide you through dreams, I'm sure He could. But I don't think the Bible leads us to expect that normally for a couple of reasons. One is the uniqueness of Jesus and his situation here. You see, Matthew's not showing us the normal Christian life, is it? No, Matthew's showing us the birth of God's great one and only King. Jesus is no ordinary Christian and his birth is no ordinary birth. And so we should be careful of assuming that what did happen is what should happen in the future. But the other thing is the Bible actually does give us wonderful promises that God is going to guide us through his scriptures, the Bible. So Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are able to make him wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And he says, in fact, the scriptures have been breathed out by God and they're useful for pretty much everything you will ever need in the Christian life teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. In fact, Paul says the scriptures will equip you, Timothy, for every single good work you'll ever need to do. The fact is, if you're a Christian, we really don't need dreams and angels when we have the Bible. As I'm trying to figure out how to raise my kids or how to spend my money or how to speak to other people or how to be married, I I don't need dreams and angels. God's word will equip me for that. And in fact, you know, in my experience, Christians who really focus on that kind of stuff often end up, look, to be honest, they often end up really immature and shallow as Christians. I remember chatting with a, a guy once who told me that he'd been really trying to cultivate listening to God's voice. And he said that he would, he would go to Woolies and he would stand in the biscuit aisle and he would stare at the biscuits until God told him which bickies that he wanted him to buy. And, you know, the more the two of us talked, the more I realized two things about him. One, he was kind of trivializing the word of God. I mean, let's face it, buying a packet of bickies from Woolies is hardly God protecting the Messiah from King Herod territory, is it? But I also realized that his focus on God sending him a word to make a decision, it actually stopped him from using the principles the Bible already gave him. All he had to do was read his Bible and he'd have all the principles he ever needed about the goodness of money, about the goodness of bickies, about the value of spending money honestly and what things are important to spend money and what things aren't important to spend money. And sure, he would have had to do some thinking for himself, but God's word would have prepared him not just to buy bickies, but to buy all sorts of things. He would have known how to buy chips. He would have known how to buy a car. He would have known how to buy a house. You see, not only do you not need dreams and angels, You'll just become a more mature Christian if you dig into God's Word. And in fact, again, that's what Matthew focuses on in this passage, isn't it? Right the way through this passage, Matthew just keeps coming back to one crucial idea, and that is that God has predicted everything that's happening here. So take a look in 2 verse 15. God sends Jesus off to Egypt, 2 verse 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. That is, God sent Jesus to Egypt so that he could fulfill. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where God promises to bring Israel back to the promised land. And look down in verse 23, God sends Jesus to Galilee to fulfill what was said through the prophets, that he'd be called a Nazarene. In fact, even the massacre of the inno- of the infants, the innocents. Herod has all the little boys killed. And look in chapter 2, verse 17, Matthew says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they're no more. Matthew says that massacre of the infants, the innocents, It actually fulfills Scripture. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, a passage we're going to be looking at in a few weeks' time when we get back to looking at Jeremiah again. And it's set in the time when Israel is being carried off into exile in Babylon. And on their way out of the promised land, as they're being exiled, they have to go past the tomb of Rachel the ancient mother of the nation of Israel. She was married to Isaac and she's the mother of the tribes of um, Joseph and Benjamin. And there's this terribly sad and poignant image that as the exiles, as her children go past her tomb, Rachel is in there weeping for them. She's weeping for the children who've been killed and she's weeping like those mothers in Bethlehem would have been weeping for their lost sons. But in Jeremiah, God said to Rachel, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. You see, God promises a return. He promises salvation to come. And that's the promise even for those mothers in Bethlehem. They're weeping because they have lost their little boys. But the one little boy to escape, the one little boy who was born there, who managed to get away, will ultimately bring salvation to Israel. Jesus will come back from Egypt and he'll come back and save not just Israel, but eventually he'll save the whole world. See, time and time again, Matthew's saying everything that's happening here is God fulfilling what He promised in the Old Testament. This is God doing what He said He would do. You see, Jesus being a king isn't a whim for God. No, God promised everything in Matthew 2 long ago. He promised it in the prophets, and then now Matthew 2 is the delivery of that promise. Do you see all of the planning that God has put into Jesus' kingship here? Do you see God's determination in this chapter? Hundreds of years before, and in fact, even before God made the world, God resolved to make Jesus the king. God planned it and he promised it, and then he guides the Magi hundreds of miles through the desert to celebrate it, and then he sends angels and dreams to secure it, and he makes a fool of the most powerful man in the nation, Herod the Great, to achieve it. Matthew 2 is all about God's determination to make Jesus the king. And so that question we began with, are you on the right side of history? Well, Matthew 2 answers that, doesn't it? The answer to that question is only if you are on Jesus' side. Only if you trust Jesus as your king. Because, you see, it's not just the magi who are going to bow down to Jesus. Now, in fact, Matthew chapter 2, this is a preview of the future. God's ultimate plan for history is that every single human being is going to bow down to Jesus. On that last day, when Jesus comes back and all of history reaches its great climax, every single human being is going to bow down and confess that Jesus really is God's great king. We will all do what those magi did, whether we want to or not. And the only people who will be on the right side of history that day will be the people who are on the right side of Jesus. You see, if you're not a Christian, Jesus really is someone to grapple with, isn't He? Jesus is someone that you've really got to work out what you think about Him. Get on the right side of history while you can. And if you are a Christian, You can see we've got nothing to worry about when it comes to history, do we? We are with the one who controls history. I tell you what, that gives us just incredible confidence. Our church has two huge initiatives planned for the next couple of years. And some people would say that they are potentially a vast waste of time and an incredible waste of effort and money. So we're doing the building project at our new building out of Garden Suburb and then we're moving in and we're also planting a new city campus for our church and the world would say, what a waste of money. You guys are doomed. No one is going to become a Christian. Christianity is a dying religion. Much better to invest all your time and energy and money into something that's actually going to be here in the future. That's what the world would say. I tell you, I'm incredibly confident Because a passage is like Matthew 2. God is determined that Jesus will reign. God is supernaturally powerful to make sure Jesus will reign. So I expect people are going to become Christians. I expect people to change people, Jesus to change people's lives and turn them upside down and bring them to himself. I believe in the promises of God. When you you follow Jesus, no money that you ever spend in His cause is ever wasted. No effort that you ever expend in Jesus' cause is ever wasted. No conversation you ever have about Jesus is ever wasted. No sacrifice you'll ever make. No prayer you ever offer is ever wasted. Because the fact is, we're investing in the one sure thing in the universe. We're investing in the one certain bet in the universe that Jesus is going to rule. And I want to throw everything I have got into the one man who really is on the right side of history, because he writes history. And that's Jesus. Why don't we pray about it? Our great heavenly Father, we praise you for this fantastic passage in Matthew chapter 2. We praise you because we see your determination that Jesus will reign, your determination to protect Jesus. We praise you that the Magi come and they bow before him and they do what the whole world is going to do. We praise you that you make a fool of the most powerful man in the nation in order to protect your king. And we thank you that this passage just gives us a glimpse into the last day. That jesus is not on the wrong side of history jesus is the culmination of history and we pray that we might live like that we pray that we might throw everything we have into his service all of our effort all of our hopes all of our plans our dreams our money our effort we pray that we might use them for the one who is on the right side of history amen